There's no doubt that medical research is accelerating. Thanks to cutting-edge technology, we can do experiments faster, at a bigger scale, and crunch more data more efficiently. But today, we're talking to a cancer researcher who is slowing down her experiments to understand how we can better tackle cancer drug resistance. You're listening to Medical Minds, the podcast that takes you inside the labs at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. I'm your host, Dr. Vivian Richter, and with me here is Associate Professor Liz Colden, Head of the Replication and Genome Stability Lab at Garvin. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Viv. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Liz, I love science. Most people listening to this podcast love science. Tell us, where did your love of science come from? I've always loved science, but I also loved the arts and I loved reading. So when I went to university, I actually undertook a double degree in science and law. And I thought I'd end up in a career which really incorporated both of those areas. And ultimately, I did do that for a little while. But while I was at university, it was the science that really inspired me. I loved being in the lab, performing experiments and not really knowing what would be the outcome of those experiments and also working in an area where there was a bit of unknown. So when I did then go to work in a law firm for a little while, I worked in the area of intellectual property. I actually didn't find that that really satisfied me because I was reading about other people's experiments about their discoveries and reading about the law that surrounded that, but I wasn't really at the action end of finding out new ideas that could actually change the face of medical research and humanity. You wanted to make those discoveries yourself? I did. I looked at what those discoveries were. I was actually working on some law cases which were about the first devices for monitoring insulin for diabetics. And when I looked at the science behind those discoveries, I was so inspired. Was there a point in your life where you realised you wanted to be a medical researcher? So ever since I've been little, I've had this scar on my arm. It's a little round, mottled scar, and I never really understood what it was for. And then when I was at university, I went to an amazing presentation from the World Health Organization that was about smallpox and the eradication of smallpox. And I, it really clicked to me then that that's what my scar was. It's actually the vaccination mark for a smallpox vaccination, which I received when I was a three-year-old. And what I found particularly inspiring was it was through those vaccinations and through those scars that the world has actually eradicated the dreadful disease of smallpox. And that made me realise the power of medical research and the power of medical intervention, that human beings can actually eradicate a whole disease. And that was a really inspiring moment for me where I felt that medical research actually had the power to change health for everybody. Absolutely. A reminder of that would be the fact that young people today don't have those scars. They don't need that vaccine because we've eradicated that disease. It is, actually. Um, I mean, I now find it's also a mark of my age, unfortunately, that I'm one of those people who does have those scars. But it's very satisfying now to see that my own children have not had to receive that vaccine or are at risk of smallpox. So, Liz, tell us about the first time you stepped into a research lab. The first research lab I went into was at university, and my major was in microbiology. And I loved microbiology. In microbiology, it opened up a whole new world to me of these tiny little organisms that we don't see day to day. 
And there were many different projects we did as part of microbiology labs. But one of the ones that stood out to me was when we were trying to grow bacteria that glowed in the dark. So if you think about deep sea creatures, we often think of that as a fluorescent environment. And in that environment, creatures express these amazing little proteins which can glow. They're often called things like green fluorescent protein. And in one of my first laboratories, we were trying to grow bacteria that could express these proteins and actually glow. If we walked into a dark room, we could see these glowing plates of bacteria. And you still use that green fluorescent protein in your research today? Yes, it's amazing how many tools from nature we do, in fact, use in our research. So if I take the example of green fluorescent protein, or I'm going to call it GFP now because that's what we call it in the lab, if we're investigating cancer cells, what we will do is we will make cancer cells produce this GFP, and we can then grow those cancer cells in a dish and look at them under the microscope. And when they produce the GFP, we're able to visualize those cells really effectively because they glow green. We can track the way that they move from one place to another. We can track the way they grow or proliferate. So every time they split, their daughter cells will also produce this GFP protein that allows us to examine the whole lifespan of a cancer cell and track its movements. So you started with green fluorescent protein in the lab. Where did you go from there? Following my undergraduate studies, I went on to do a Master of Science at the University of Toronto in Canada. And this was an amazing place to do further studies. It's a real hub of research. While I was there, I was studying some of the mechanisms in basic biology, learning how cells control their proliferation and what are the intricate mechanisms they use to control proliferation. And that's a process that often goes wrong in cancer. Is that right? It is. So cancer is often seen as a disease of uncontrolled proliferation. So normally in our body, every cell will know its destiny. It knows that it's meant to grow for a period of time and then it's meant to stop. But one of the main things that goes wrong in cancer is that those cues to stop proliferation or to stop cell growth are actually taken away. And the studies I undertook at the University of Toronto were really important for me when I returned to Australia to start my PhD because I was studying that process of proliferation and the loss of control of proliferation in breast cancer. So we were lucky enough to have you come back to Australia. Tell us about your research here. When I came back to Australia, I was initially studying proliferation in breast cancer cells and understanding some of the basic mechanisms of how breast cancer cells grow and proliferate and what controls that. When we look at breast cancer and how breast cancer actually develops, even though we think of cancer as being a disease of uncontrolled proliferation, breast cancers actually take a long time to develop. They can take up to 10 years for a breast cancer to be detected in the body or even longer. So even while it's a disease of uncontrolled proliferation, some of that growth is quite slow. So in my research, I became particularly interested in understanding the differences between slow growth and fast growth and how that impacted on cancer biology. And the first thing that might pop into your mind is that people die from the fast-growing breast cancers, but that's actually not the case. About 50% of breast cancer deaths are actually from what we'd often characterize as a slower-growing breast cancer. And I think it's really important to study that slow growth 
and understand its biology because by understanding the differences between those slow-growing and fast-growing cancers, we actually start to understand that they need different drugs. And for that reason, we have been specifically studying slow-growing cancers in our lab. And this means our experiments can actually take a really long time. In fact, some of our experiments take up to four years in length. We're trying to really understand how these slow-growing cancers respond to drugs. But it's been a really important exercise for us, and it's been extraordinarily fruitful in terms of the results we've had from these long-term experiments. So what have you learned about breast cancer through your slow-growing cancer cell lines? We found by performing longer-term experiments, we uncovered different types of biology about cancer cells. Fast-growing cells tend to have a biology where they will take lots of signals from their environment and use those signals as cues to make them grow really, really fast. But with slow-growing cells, they actually use different cues from their environment. These cues we use for the environment are often the basis of the way we use drugs. We use drugs that interact those signaling pathways and those cues. So if we use drugs for fast-growing cells, they won't necessarily work on slow-growing cells because those slow-growing cells rely on different pathways to stimulate their growth. And so you're looking at cancer drug resistance, is that right? So the most common subtype of breast cancer is estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. It accounts for about 75% of women with breast cancer. And with this disease, the majority of these cancers are slow growing. Initially, a woman will get surgery and perhaps chemotherapy for this type of cancer. And following that, they'll receive anti-hormone therapy for a period of five to 10 years. For those who are listening, who are familiar with this, and because it's so incredibly common, a number of you will be, these women receive drugs with names like tamoxifen or arimidex. Now, while these drugs are really successful in preventing a recurrence of breast cancer, about 30% of women who get ER-positive breast cancer, in fact, get a recurrence of their breast cancer. And once it comes back, it can be extremely difficult to treat. It's understanding the disease of these women who get these recurrent breast cancers after already having suffered through an initial breast cancer. So what have you found out about cancer recurrence? So the reason that these cancers come back is because of drug resistance. These cancer cells have an extraordinary ability to adapt and change themselves so that they're able to evade the drugs that we give them. And that's part of what we study We study how those cancer cells evolve under the pressure of drugs over a period of years and what changes happen in those cancer cells so that they no longer respond to therapy. So what are you seeing under the microscope when you're looking at these drug-resistant cells? We take these cells and we grow them in dishes and expose them to drugs for a period of months. And we might see that for these cells, for the first couple of months, we don't actually see any changes in them. But as we keep observing them, we can see with the passage of time that these cells start to evolve and change, and they manage to gain this extraordinary ability to adapt to the drug. We can investigate that at a number of different levels, and I'm very lucky being located at the Garvin Institute. We have some extraordinary technologies there, which allow us to understand the changes in these cells at a DNA level, a protein level, and at a single cell level. 
looking at each cell individually to understand how each cell differs to one another in the way it changes in response to drugs. So what have you learned about these changes to the cancer cells? We've actually learned that the change is not immediate and that it goes in phases. So cells can go through a period of adaptation where they actually start to reprogram themselves. And during that period of adaptation, they are not growing particularly fast. They do not stand out. They're not the kind of cell that you'd really see as the enemy in that state. They seem quite benign. But those adaptive changes are really what's setting them up to be able to persist and grow through drugs as they further develop. They're persistent. They're an unknown, uh, something that can go underneath the radar for a really long period of time. So how is your research going to help patients with breast cancer in the future? At the moment, breast cancer is a disease that is often not seen as the most serious of cancers. We've got so many amazing treatments for breast cancer. And actually, as a researcher, I find that really inspiring because a lot of those treatment options have actually arisen from research. But the problem with breast cancer is this high rate of recurrence in breast cancer. And when patients recur, it is those patients that we actually don't have a lot of treatment options for. Because a lot of the standard therapies don't work that well on patients with recurrent disease. And in fact, that's why I particularly study that disease, to try to understand why those cancer cells won't respond to current therapies and what new therapies we can develop to particularly target those types of cancers. We're finding that those sorts of cancer cells that are slow growing actually rely on different molecular pathways to fast growing cells. They're actually doing different things on the inside. So if we treat those cells with the same sorts of drugs that we give to fast growing cells, then not going to work for that very reason because they don't rely on those pathways. They're actually relying on a different machinery to make themselves tick. So our work is really about understanding that machinery, understanding what makes a slow-growing cell tick and how can we find the Achilles heel of those cells. At the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty for people who are receiving long-term therapy for breast cancer to stop breast cancer recurrence. Those survivors of an initial breast cancer are asking questions such as, do I really need to take this long-term therapy? Those long-term therapies don't come without side effects. In fact, they're quite debilitating side effects, some of them. And we would love to be able to understand which patients don't actually need to receive those long-term therapies to stop a breast cancer recurrence. For those patients who do go on to get a recurrence, we want to know how to treat them better. We want to be able to offer a solution if there is a cancer recurrence. For patients that have breast cancer and are on these long-term therapies, what drugs do you think will benefit them in future? In the future, I think for breast cancer patients, we'll have much more personalised options. At the moment, for this large number of women who do receive these preventative drugs, and at the end of the day, this ends up being something like 1 in 14 or 1 in 15 women in their lifetime because this type of breast cancer is so extraordinarily common. If these women go on to get a recurrence, I think we will be able to offer them personalised therapy. We will be able to look at their particular type of recurrent disease 
and analyse that disease and understand better what is making that disease tick and how to better treat them with drugs that are specific for their particular recurrence. What are patients with breast cancer telling you about their treatment? Through my research, I'm lucky to interact with a number of breast cancer patients in the field we call breast cancer patients who help out with research projects, we call them consumers or they call themselves consumers. This is a group of wonderful women who advise me on my research projects and how relevant they are for the breast cancer community. And some of the most important feedback I've had from that community is that there is a really big fear of recurrence from breast cancer. And they really want better options to understand how that recurrence will be dealt with if it in fact occurs. It's that fear of the unknown, isn't it? Absolutely. So after an initial breast cancer, women who are on these drugs have that constant daily reminder of that recurrence because they're in fact taking a preventative therapy for a period of five to 10 years after that initial diagnosis. And they're asking the question, is this therapy really necessary? It's giving me pretty horrible side effects. And is it actually working? Is it actually doing its job? And will I ever get a breast cancer recurrence? Ultimately, this is the group of women that we're aiming to help. And we would love to give them the confidence in their daily lives that they know that the therapies that they are taking are effective, that they know there are solutions if they do get a recurrence. And that's what we work towards in our laboratory. Liz, you've been at Garvin for a long time. What makes this such a world-leading institute for cancer research? The Garvin has some really incredible researchers who I'm lucky enough to call my colleagues, and there's expertise across a large number of different cancers as well as other types of disease. And it's really this brain's trust that helps me in my research. I've got amazing colleagues who I can bounce ideas off and exchange ideas, collaborate on experiments, and together we are really working towards different and better outcomes in cancer. So this is all quite far from IP and patents. We're glad we didn't lose you to your law career. Yes, it's definitely a contrast to the desk job in the law firm, but I've got to say it's a path that I've really enjoyed over the last 20, 25 years since making that decision. Being in a laboratory and in a laboratory setting has everyday challenges. And of course, some days aren't great. Some days everything doesn't work. But just every now and then, you just have that real light bulb moment that is so inspiring. It is wonderful to be there as we're breaking new ground in understanding cancer biology. I also have an opportunity to work with many younger people who are starting that research journey for themselves. I supervise PhD students And they are just starting to uncover how wonderful it is to be at the forefront of research and making new discoveries. Now, before we let you get back to the lab and to your discoveries, it's time for the Fast Five. What do you do in your downtime? I've got to say I don't get a lot of downtime. I'm in the lab a lot and in the rest of my time I spend with my family. So one of the things I have been doing in my downtime is I have been a netball team manager for one of my daughters this year. What's the most challenging thing you've ever had to do? Well, a couple of years ago, I, for some reason, decided to take my kids abseiling for the first time. Wow. And I thought because they loved climbing things, they'd be right into it and I wouldn't actually have to do very much. 
at the time, but unfortunately they both got quite scared. So I had to set the example by being the first one over the side. Oh no. With a big smile on my face as well. (laughs) So that was rather challenging to overcome my fears while looking happy about it as well. Liz, do you have any secret skills? Well, when I was in high school and at university, I was in fact a fencer. So one of my secret skills is a bit of skill with the foil. Now, if you don't know what the foil is, there's three weapons in fencing. There's the foil, the epée, and the sabre. And my specialty was the foil. What's been your best holiday? For my 30th birthday, I did a camping trip in Kakadu. And that was an absolute standout of a holiday. Just getting to get off the beaten track and go and see waterfalls with no one else around. Hopefully not run into any crocodiles, of course, but it was an absolutely stunning part of Australia. Is there anyone you admire? So there's a lot of people I admire. I admire members of my family, a lot of my colleagues. There's kind of no one person I kind of see as an inspiration because there's so many inspirational people around me. But this year's Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to two individuals and one of them was Catalan Carrico. And She's a scientist who helped develop the mRNA vaccines, which are being used for COVID. And she has an extraordinary life story of how she followed her passion for science. She didn't get supported along a lot of the way, but she was so driven by her desire to understand this biology that she persisted despite everything that happened to her. Associate Professor Liz Colden... Thank you so much for joining us on Medical Minds. It's been my absolute pleasure, Viv. I've really enjoyed telling you about our research. If you'd like to know more about Associate Professor Colden's research or the work we do at Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Dr. Vivian Richter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.